So, uh, welcome everyone to another episode of Notes from the Aleph. Uh, and Aleph is, of course, the high point from which all things are visible. And from our vantage point, we'll be looking at tabletop role-playing games, their design, and the theory behind those designs. And around here, our motto is to be fair, build up, and have fun. Uh, I'm your host, Griffin Bro, uh, joined by our editor, Theta, our local designer, Norman Rafferty, our good friend and GM, Red Rabbit, and today, our guest, Lessons Learned, over on his own Twitch channel. Uh, and when it comes to tabletop gamings, I have uh, 15 years of experience running, playing, and frequently fixing problematic rule sets at the table. Uh, pronouns are he, him, and they, them. And next person. Uh, I'm Lessons Learned. Um, I'm a writer of speculative fiction. I have my first book, Night and Starts, over at Amazon for 99 cents, a collection of short stories. I've also been GMing various systems for the last 20 plus years. Yes, I am that old. And uh, also deeping my toes, or actually going head full on the design space with several projects, including the one I'm working right now called 2980, a sci fi retro 1980s adventure uh, video, uh, not video game, but uh, tabletop RPG. And uh, I'm Red Rabbit. I'm currently GMing our Iron Claw Second Edition game here on the Ractus channel. Um, I am three year professional uh, GM. I also consider myself a student of tabletop game design. And that leaves Norman, who needs to unmute. <laughs> More exciting when I'm unmuted. Exactly. Really, I sound better muted, don't I? <laughs> Hello, I'm, I'm Norman Rafferty. I have less than a year experience working with microphones, apparently. Um, uh, I, uh, I was nerdy enough a long time ago to do an entire statistical analysis to discover the entire percentages of odds of every shadow run and... Uh, World of Darkness role. And that started the long road where I now work for Sanguine Games, where we make tabletop games. It's a slippery slope, everyone. Never do statistics or Monte Carlo simulations, not even once. Can you just imagine the buckets of D10s and D6s rolling. But but we're not doing the probability one today. What what is our subject today, Griffin? Uh, The first subject today we have is game complexity as a toxic gatekeeper. So this is a tough one to go ahead and word out. So I'm just going to go ahead and open up the air on this one. So Rafferty, why don't you go ahead and explain uh, what you mean by this, this topic? Four M one, right? Four uh, M, yes, that's what it's going to be called. Yeah. The four M rule of mechanics multiply mistakes is the four M rule. That is a mouthful. Right. Well, that's what we call it. The four M rule: mountains of mechanics multiply mistakes. And what that basically means is the more rules you have the more mistakes you can make. Because obviously if we didn't have rules, we wouldn't be making any mistakes now, would we? Um, and um, there, uh, you know, uh, I think you folks have heard the term heartbreaker. Has anybody heard that before as a game? Yeah. Those are like the like. indie game scene, right? Yeah. yeah what, what is a heartbreaker? Uh, it's a game where you have high anticipation and it lets you down because it's actually terrible. Yeah, but I mean, oh, like, okay. yeah, that that's usually... Usually the way they let you down is they usually have a lot of bizarre or strange rules. A lot of mm-hmm. people, um, when they start game designing, they find their favorite game and they think, you know, this is my favorite game, but we'll make it better is more rules. Let's put more of them in there. I mean, obviously, if like nine alignments are good, then 49 alignments would be like nine times better. Um, I, do, I do have a rule for that, though. You know, that, oh, What do you call that? I call it the, uh, the rule of threes, which is a counter to that. Because when I started designing, I got into that. I really go like, oh, I like fourth edition D&D. And so let's make more of that. 
and, and people, you know, people go like fourth edition TNT. Oh my god, no, no, but you know, seriously, because I like yeah, the simplicity of the edition and all that. There's there's a good thing about fourth edition, but uh, yeah, and so that's I, an interesting comparison, yeah. Uh, yeah, so basically, I said, okay, I'm going to try to keep every rule that I make to have at least three steps or less as a rule that way. Everything else that comes along, it has to be necessary in order for this to make sense. Otherwise, I'm writing too much. I'm I'm putting too much that I don't need to put in here. Now, right. that's a rule. doesn't apply to everything, but it's one I, I use for myself. Right. No, definitely. Like, you may know that that I'm Rafferty. I am the anti-old school. Grr, old school was worse. We already did the podcast, old school's worse than you remember, right? Yes, yes. I... Yeah, right. So a lot of a lot of old school games often uh, this isn't quite phrasing it, but took sort of a cookbook approach to it, which is if you ever cooked, you may know that the recipe in the book isn't all you know ironclad. It's kind of like a guideline. Like you often, if you're cooking, you look at this and go, obviously this needs more pepper, or obviously this needs more garlic, or something else is more suitable for your group. So a lot of early games were kind of marketed that way. You can read the opening text where they say, what is role-playing like? To understand this, we must go back to ancient Greece, that intro paragraph that nobody reads. So in theory, they started putting the books filled with rules. And what started to happen was that when they get, sent these books out to people, they um, other people started to read these rules and interpret them. And like today, you can easily see on the internet that there's forums where people will discuss, like, what does this mean? Like, if this gives, lets me sacrifice attack bonus for a bonus to damage, what does that mean at different levels? Is that worth it at level 5? Is it still worth it at level 10? It's just a trap build. How do I optimize my build? People go through all of that. Mm -hmm. And the more complicated the book is, uh, the, the more, um, yeah, the fewer people can play it, and the more people will sort of toss this stuff out. And I'm glad you brought up D&D 4th Edition because that's an interesting one because D&D 4th Edition is often uh, um, accused of being like way too complicated. Like like folks are just saying like, there's just way too much uh, rules in this or it's too much like a war game. Why is everything in squares? How come I can fire a crossbow nine times? Uh, but what's weird to me about that is D&D 4th Edition is way simpler than some of the previous D&D editions that came before it. And D&D 5th edition is still pretty complicated. I mean, when you, you have to choose all your spells, you get to third level and you have to choose a path, which can turn you into a fighter, which has those skill dice. Does anybody play a fighter with those weird D&D 5 skill dice? Uh, I do, actually. Currently in Lessons game, actually. You have a very right. limited set of abilities, and you spend the dice as points in order to use those abilities. Right, and, and then and the list is listed in alphabetical order instead of precedence order, so you have to go through that to pick... I mean, that's ultra-complicated, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and like, when people talk about 4th edition, like the complexity is definitely just the verbosity of it. There's a lot of text to read, even if that text is simple. But the organizational structure of it is pretty sound, where it's like you explicitly have this many uh, encounter abilities, this many dailies, and you have two choices. Pick one. There you go, and you're done. Right. Whereas and, and with the fighter stuff, it's like, here's the entire list. You get to pick them at any time. And, you know, maybe depending on how the game is run, some might be more worthwhile, some might not be. Maybe no monster ever attacks you, so repost is worthless or something like that. Right. Well, but 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 what uh, I think what the what the good selling point is of D and D five is somehow D and D five is still an extremely complicated game. Uh, it, it's more complicated than 
than many of its peers like Call of Cthulhu or um, you know uh, Chronicles of Darkness. It's pretty complicated, but it's presented in such a way that it doesn't make people feel like it is complicated. Right, and I think, and I think I, like the most important thing they took away from Fourth Edition was giving you very discrete increments and parts as you go, which is how games should probably be. Yeah, I think the way you build a character, you don't get everything up front like, hey, you can do this, and that's like, no, that's third level. You know, you get to well, play from one third level, and nothing. Now people like to start at third level once they get used to the system. But the idea is if you're a first player, you only have to worry about what first level can do. And then they give you a little chunk more of second level. And then and when once you get to third level, you're like, oh, okay. I mean, people who are playing are already thinking that they want to be, you know, you know, dual dual wielding, you know, chainsaws at fifth level, or whatever. But it's it's um it's the process, right? They channel you into like, don't worry about anything else. Worry about your fighter. Worry about your bard. Like that. yeah, so it helps a lot. Uh, I I think it's somewhat of an improvement. It, I think it was handled a lot better back in um. Well, I'm going to call it the Moldvay fork, the uh, the the D&D basic set, the one that started with Moldvay and later turned into the BECMI that folks are used to, uh, and then later the D&D Cyclopedia. That fork of D&D. Uh, B- mm-hmm. You guys know what the BECMI one was in 83? I have heard I of it. I know the Cyclopedia, okay. and I know the Moldvay. I think right. that's the, the meeting set. Because that one was one. presented as the basic set was levels one through three, and then the expert set were levels above that. And then once you maxed out that, they had the champion set, and then uh, the master set and the immortal set. They broke it down into different levels. And also, they broke down some of the complexity into different levels. Like, for example, blinding as a mechanic, like spells that blind people, starts off extremely basic in basic D&D, and then expert D&D had more rules to do it. It's one of the few games I've seen that wanted the game to become more complex, but slowly inculcated you in it. Um, These days, a lot of what people are... Well, I shouldn't say a lot of people. I I think there's... um, the the designer i think has to look at the at how much the complex they want to make the game because you you can't sell people an empty book uh um when uh, and also there's still a mindset from folks that um a game is being supported if it has more material coming out for it it's a, a strange paradox in gaming where someone will say hey let's play pathfinder look at all the material that comes out for it pause next sentence by the way, we're not using 1,200 pages of rules. I mean, it's great that they exist, but we're not going to use them. Yeah, so, I think, yeah, I think that's one of the problems that can also be a, a bit of a barrier. It's like, some okay, if I come in at a game when it's just released, and I just buy the player handbook or the equivalent, oh, that's all I have to take, and I slowly can take in the books one or two a year if I have the money and all that, then fine, no problem. But if I come into the hobby five years later... And there's like, say, you release at least, and four books is a known number for the history of Dungeons and Dragons, just to mention it. Uh, it should be a dozen books. And it's like, what, what, where do I start? But do I need the book that talks about witches and, and you know, mind magic? Or do I, do I need the book about underwater combat? And, and right. And you could just and, end up completely overloaded on that. And yeah. so when we look at like different spheres, like uh, video game tutorials kind of have the idea down pat. It's like you want to, introduce people to a mechanic, let them play 30 minutes, introduce them to another. And no tutorial ever really ends. You're always getting new stuff. Uh, and a lot of board games uh, are doing what we just said, uh, BCA, 
uh, BCI did, right? Where you have an introductory set of rules and it says, all right, now that you've played your first game, here's more rules on top of that, which will make the game more interesting or complex now that you understand the basics of it. Yeah, but there's not fact, a lot of that in tabletop. In fact, my issue with D&D 5 is people are saying, well, D&D 5 is simpler. And I'm saying it's not so simple enough. You start mm -hmm. the game as a fighter, you immediately have to go choose a bunch of skills that you don't know what they do. You uh, have to choose what your starting path. So are you going to be a sword and board person? Are you going to be a two-handed person? Uh, what are you going to pick? That gives you a special ability. You get the heroic surge, which allows you to get uh, you know an extra attack per round. You start with a whole bunch of special abilities beginning the game. And then go choose your equipment. I mean, sure, there's a fast build for it, but you, know, you know, bows and swords and all that kind of stuff. And all of that is at level one. They, they oh, dump yeah. all of that on you. Itemizing uh, equipment is definitely the thing that I see the most players immediately stop and go brain dead at because it's like, all right, yeah, I have this shopping list and now I have way too many choices. It is immediate decision paralysis, just uh, inflicted I, I, by written word. Oh, yeah. I, I think equipment has, has, has like, oh, well, we can do a whole thing on encumbrance. Nobody pays attention to that. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Um, I just think, uh, like, it was it, it was just a weird design choice. Uh, because, I mean, yeah, people are going to go by and say, Rafferty, aren't your games really complicated at the beginning? It's like, yeah, yeah, we stopped doing that. <laughs> uh, um, I, I uh, for, for years, I've been a big fan of point-by games, like Hero System, GURPS, and I guess Fate. Uh, these games that would, you know, say, okay, you start the game with, like, a ball of points, like 50 or 100 points, and buy whatever you want. And, um... I've become very soured on that because um, because you have to understand I, everything at once suddenly. Yeah, I was meeting. I was we were getting reviews of our games that people were saying like things were impossible to do and like you know like you can't build a two gun fighter or whatever. And I was always like you know I'm trying to figure out why people were saying that because no, we gave you points to spend on anything you wanted and then put things in the game that were buy this for two guns. But for some reason, you know, reviewers who I assume know what they're talking about or some players who would, might be new to this could not bridge the gap of, you know, here's 50 bucks there on the shelf of stuff to buy. Go buy what you want that they weren't getting there. And so as much as I love these games that gave me the freedom to build whatever I wanted, uh, it was because it was a mechanic, because people had to parse through it and find it themselves, they weren't finding it and, and so um i mean i love games that let me do whatever the heck i want because we could do a whole thing on that but but also I, I think a lot of people just play these games to have fun speaking of not having fun hero system <laughs> so I, i've had my own experience with that and i think this is probably a good example of a game that does not want you to play it i think it is inscrutably complicated um so out of my group of local friends i'm one of the nerdiest and there's uh, another person who's just about as nerdy likes doing the math. And we spent like a good solid week literally pouring day after day over that just to figure out how it works. And by the end of it, we're like doing different little mathematical models just to figure out how like the purchases for powers with their benefits and downsides work and trying to figure out which one of those makes sense. And at a certain point, no one else could possibly understand it without the same amount of study. We had okay. complete control over how everyone else interprets the game just because we did massive amounts of work trying to figure out how the broken mess works. Yeah, I, I just got to make a statement here. It's not that hard. You just remember that a three-quarter limitation is the same as multiplying by four and dividing by seven. 
But of course, what if you have multiple things? So what comes first? Do you do the benefits first or the drawbacks first? Well, th this is where I want to ask like cheaper and more beneficial to you as a player. So, so games like like GURPS and Hero and uh, Rollmaster and that sort of thing kind of fell out of favor. Uh, I'm interested in some of the newer gamers here. Like, uh, I mean, have you encountered a game that you really wanted to play but was too complicated? I think that was probably the feeling I had with Hero System because at the whoa, time whoa, whoa. I was very excited to have an open-ended uh, system. And then I played Mutants of Mastermind instead, and it's a lot simpler. <laughs> Even then, it was still complicated. Because... Comparatively, it was at least easier. Um, yeah, I've seen that. That's uh, I guess it's a word for the opposite of the Heartbreaker, where somebody really likes a game and they make a version that's simpler, but then you go play and it's like, well, yeah, but the original was a horrible mess, so this is just a mess. Um, yeah, that's a uh, that's Cyberpunk Red. Honestly, if you want oh, no. a recent example, there we go. <laughs> yeah. a, great one. a few people have experiences with that. I think uh, one um, of our good friends I don't have Hugo could tell you. Red. I've worked with the people who worked on Cyberpunk Third Edition, which is an edition that many people don't know exists because it was the, because people hated it that much. Well, that's there interesting. Was, there was a twenty after twenty twenty. Like, yeah, uh, it's after 2020. Revision. Before... It was the revision, right? The revision of 2020, I believe it is. Right? right, there's one after 2020, but before Red, and no one knows that one exists because nobody liked it. But it isn't the Interlock Plus hero system that they created that was a D10 or D6 alternate system that you could be used on both. Well, see, that's a fascinating failed experiment. So speaking of the speaking of the hero system cyberpunk connection. Okay, so the hero system guys realized that they had very, speaking of a toxic gatekeeper, uh, one review of hero system I really liked was for people who can't decide if they like calculus or superheroes more. And they, they realized that they had uh, a gatekeeper in their game because it was so complicated where not only did you have to, you have to divide by fractions. Okay, what the hell? But not only do you have to divide by fractions, you have to multiply in the middle of combat. You'd have to roll a die, subtract one, and multiply your other damage to determine the stun damage and body damage. Because you're doing stun damage and body damage and power damage in separate So nobody wanted to play their game because it was too complicated. They, they, like People who loved it really loved it. So they teamed up with, of all people, the cyberpunk people. Uh, they teamed up with Artel Sorian to make a new game system called the Fusion Game System. And Fusion was supposed to be the best of Cyberpunk combined with the best of Hero System. And this is where I like tear up my gray hairs because I'm guessing that none of you have ever heard of this. Oh, I played it. I oh, played it. Haven't. I played it trying to. Well, I attempted it. Let me put it that way. And not just with Cyberpunk, but with Mechton Plus. There we go, Mechton Plus. Yeah. And um, that was a, that was a, a great book. Basically, the, the one that everybody remembers about Mechton Plus was Mechton Seda which was the build a robot way, right? Except that there were basically two people, people who actually knew the system and could build anything. And then people who thought they could learn the system, me, and could never build anything that they want. For some reason, you could never get the math rate, the points, et cetera, to get that one giant robot that was a real robot, but had drill hands that could shoot from the, from the shoulders or whatever, right? The system promised you could do all of that, but you had to essentially, you had to uh, gain, uh, and I realized the way they were doing it was that they had to hack the system. They had to hack the system to make it work. Well, they had to uh, add extra, extra, extra steps to really make it work the way they always and, want. And I'm just going to be mean here and say that, um, like, I, uh, as much as I love generic and universal games, a major problem with the games is there's no such thing as a generic game. 
as soon as you start making rules to your game, you've made some decisions about what uh, what goes and what doesn't. And um, for a long time in gaming, there was a real problem of, should bullets kill people? Well, yeah. obviously, no action movie here ever goes down to a gunshot wound, so of course they shouldn't, because you're so cool. And that goes back I to mean, our simulation oh, is performance. Well, you're supposed to be realistic, well, like, for example. Now that now that years have passed and Final Fantasy VII has faded into obscurity because of its silliness, there was no that opening segment of the game where uh, Shinra guards shoot your character with bullets. They bounce off of his face and he loses like six percent of his hit points. Everyone obviously thought that was way too silly and stopped playing the game immediately. Right? Oh yeah, definitely. The, no one, no one ever has even heard of Final Fantasy VII. That's right. True, of course. So next on. <laughs> Mechtom was written any you know like before Grand Theft Auto showed up and gave us the idea that hot dogs could cure bullet wounds. Um, the um, a lot of older school games are designed to kill you instantly because bullets are deadly in the real world, therefore they should be deadly in the game. And Mechton uh, was one of those games where it, it the because it's got so much mechanics in it. I mean, like they promise you, look at all the cool Gundams on the front cover. You like Gundam, don't you? Where they uh, where the heroes are so skilled they can see where barrels are pointing so they can dodge lasers. Actual Gundam lore. Yeah. So, right, so I want to play a character like that. But but unfortunately, the guys who wrote the game said, well, obviously in real life, you know, you couldn't dodge a bullet and getting shot by a bullet would kill you instantly or put you in the hospital. Therefore, we'll write the rules that way. And so you spend a lot of time trying to go through, uh, you know, like the mechanics are modeled that way, where everything does a crap ton of damage and bullets are incredibly likely to hit you. So you have to, like, go through all those mechanics to figure out what the designers were originally thinking. I guess we could call that, what is that, ludonarrative dissonance? Right, where the story doesn't match the mechanics. Right, where the story, and, and then and then you'll wind up, speaking of Gatekeeper, the people who show up to play it are annoying people like Rafferty, who have read the rules and have figured out what an optimal build is. And then they'll show up with an optimal build because they have no life and we'll go ahead and just do that. And then there's the problem where the optimal build, according to the rules, might not be what your story is supposed to be, which is a real problem with games that have crap tons of mechanics, because someone will find some weird combination and excel at that. And now you're in a big problem because you bought this book and it's got a bunch of rules in it that say, this is what goes. But uh, and someone in good faith bought that book and built a character according to those rules. But now but you guys don't want that to happen. You don't want someone to just dodge all bullets and kill people instantly. That's not a challenge. Or maybe, you know, they have some power that's powered by the blood of orphans or something else that's not appropriate because somebody wrote some weird rule somewhere. So now you have to argue, you know, now the GM has to argue with the player that, yes, we brought this rule book, and I said we were going to do what's in this rule book, but now we're not going to do what's in this rule book, so stop paying attention to this rule book. Right. Yeah, that sounds to me like one of the phenomena that happens, or three phenomena, I sort of, again, rule three, but in a different way, uh, along, along the life of, a, of any, you know, long-living role-playing game, which is rule graph, rule drift, and I forgot the other <laughs> rule aspect of it. Oh, essentially, rule bloat, rule bloat, uh, rule graph, rule bloat, and rule drift. You know, as as you support the game, because you know most uh, game publishing companies are mostly book publishing companies. You're there to sell books, so the idea is: well, if we publish more books, we're supposed to sell more books. 
tell that to TSR in the 1990s. That didn't work. Yep. And uh, well, there's a yes, reason and, why, why TSR had a warehouse full of unsold material. Um, yeah. Because they weren't making what people wanted. And um, yeah, and also I'm going to be really mean. Can I be mean? Is it okay if I mean? You know, just this once, sure. Just tell us how one. you really okay. feel. Yeah, well, but tell us how you I can say this also because I'm a published game designer. Okay, the people who show up to write for tabletop role-playing games are people who couldn't get jobs writing for computer games, novels, or television shows. So <laughs> you're you're going to get some very enthusiastic volunteers. And often what shows up in these books over a long period of time is whoever showed up that day and what they thought were cool. So you're you're having even less canon control than you would say in the Marvel Cinematic Universe or Star Trek, where they would have consistent editorial staff that would say, okay, we can't do this. We can't do that. You know, no Voyager can't go warp 9.6 because we said they could only do 9.2. You got the continuity expert on scene. who's like, no, the phaser was on that table during the scene. Don't you remember? Yeah, yeah, or something to... like that. Like right. at least some editorial oversight. So you'll often, so you won't get a unified voice in these books. And and also when it comes to books, there's the lesson, as I just mentioned, of TSR. When TSR went out of business in the 90s, Watsi bought them out, and it was the coast, bought them out, and found a warehouse full of unsold merchandise. And that's because a lot of the stuff they were making were stuff like Birthright and Red Steel and other names that you none of you have ever heard of because no one was buying it. Um, because it wasn't, um, it didn't boost players. A lot of them were ways to make uh, players jump through more hoops to do stuff. Like, like no one needs another book of magic item creation that just says, okay, you have to spend twelve months instead of eight months making something. No, no one wanted to buy a book to become nerf. People want to buy a book to become. But you've probably had this situation where this player shows up. You guys are long GMs. Have you ever had that? You seen the player show up and he's got, hey, the new primal book just came out. And I play a hunter. It's in the new book. Oh yeah, uh, back during three point five, that literally happened just about every month, where it's like, oh hey, here's new content. I want to do the new content. Let's see it. And we were not wise enough at the time to realize that it could all be terribly busted or horribly written. I mean, I'd like well, to play the yeah. geomancer. They they just cast spells from every list in the book. They can't possibly be game imbalanced, can it? You know, um, and going back to something that Lessons brought up earlier when we were talking about coming to a game late and you had, you know, now you have 12 of these books you have to be familiar with and which ones do you use? And the answer is all of them because the people that you play with, especially in this day and age of like D&D Beyond, where it kind of all gets conglomerated online, your players, if it's published, they think it's fair game. They want to play with the new options because it's better because it's newer. So... Yeah, that's another thing to contend with is that, yeah, people even today are still always going to shoot for the latest thing that they can have. Oh, Unearthed Arcana. I mean, no one reads the this is playtest material. They're like, oh, look at this new thing. It's like, yeah, they say here on the label that new thing is broken. Oh, man. That's, yeah. But it's a new thing and it's cool and it's an idea we want to do because maybe other materials sail. It was published by the the producers. So that's why I say about the three rules, like as you go along, you graph rules, because I remember the original Thief from, well, not the original Thief, the original Thief was more broken, but let's say AD&D first edition as earlier. And it was like, oh, hey, everything you do in the in this roll a d20, add, subscribe, multiplier, do so this. But the Thief, we're going to have a point bank system with percentages. We're like, oh, okay. Don't forget to increase so, your saves versus death, by uh, the way. Yeah, but that's a, and also, uh, that, that's rule grafting. 
wow. adding rules that are not part of the the, the, the core mechanic. Right. We have, we have rule bloat, which is you keep adding rules. Uh, say Shadowrun, say a certain company out of uh, Mount Laurel, Michigan, which I won't mention them uh, for some reasons. <laughs> and uh, and um, and uh, so you also have rule drift, it's which you end up like probably what happened with TSR was like a player would use like a paragraph of this one book for this one character, say Paladin. The other player would use another paragraph for a pet in the else books. They had cool dogs, and say somebody else would use another thing. So your your entire party was spread out out of a, of a half a dozen a dozen or sometimes two hundred or three hundred books. So it was all over the place. So you had this sort of very long line of rules that were from everywhere, and eventually you go, you know what? It must be better just to consolidate everything else, do a new edition, and start over again. You know yep. because. <laughs> why you know if i have to keep picking books to go that paragraph six page 97 on the dwarves book but i need to know what the new breath weapon and the dragons and dragon gods books you know uh do over there it just becomes unwieldy and well, then that, that, that yeah, company that that. Kept, you know kept basically telling you in the foreword that uh we put all the rules we couldn't put on the last book this in this yeah. book but there were so many rules we're going to put in that that goes into the next book. You're like, right. and, and, Kevin, uh, I hate you. Basically, I mean, I think we're all in agreement here. I think the big thing that makes a lot of this fall apart uh, is uh, the um, the the lack of oversight. I mean, like, you're, there's supposed to be a line editor who goes through all of the books and makes sure that you know, first of all, the mechanics make sense if there are new ones that are introduced, and secondly, to make sure that they have some level of balancing with other ones. And I think the third thing that doesn't show up a lot is the flavor issue with it. Like Dungeons and Dragons is often described as a generic fantasy, but D&D fantasy is not Harry Potter. It's not Lord of the Rings. It's not Game of Thrones. There are you if you tried to tell those stories with D&D, you'd have to tear huge sections of the book out, you know, to, to, to make it work the same way and change a bunch of other things to make it work the same way. So, um, and a lot, a lot of role-playing games aren't necessarily, you, you had a problem with generic games like D&D or Mechton Zeta, which couldn't make up their mind what they wanted to be. Did they want to be a grim and gritty genre where people are getting shot? Or do they want to be Gurren Lagan's uh, uh, Let's Shoot the Sun? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And um, trying to model everything uh, isn't ideal. I mean, to get back on mechanics... I, I think this is why you saw a much better success rate with games that that tried to step away from the mechanics and push more of the setting. Like Vampire the Masquerade. Vampire the Masquerade isn't generic vampires. Vampire the Masquerade is very specifically a certain kind of vampire. And right, it's very much books... conspiracy and occultism combined into a modern setting. Yeah. Right. It was and it was urban fantasy. That's what it was. Very right. much well, 1990s urban fantasy. But it's not true blood. It's not the vampire Lestat. It's not underworld despite the lawsuit. It's, it's not a vampire whole diaries. Very specific kind. Definitely not Twilight. It's oh, a definitely. it's a very specific kind uh you know, a vampire, which allowed them to do their city by night books and their source books. Uh, and sell that. And I, I don't know if that was by design, but it's a good thing they, they pushed that because that allowed them to support it without necessarily drowning the books in new rules. That, that happened a little bit later, but uh, I think they were they were up on that. But um, I, I, I do have an exception to saying that they were not drowning new rules because I do have a, and this might be just somebody outsider looking in kind of way, but I do believe that there's a thing 
hard rules, soft rules, where the hard rule is, you know, your dice mechanics, your card mechanics, your, you know, conflict resolution mechanics. But your soft rules is like a description of a city, because that's a rule that says that in L.A. in 1995, the vampire rule has this king or this queen or this duke. Right. And that's the rule unless the players go like, I, I don't like that. So I'm going to throw it away. It may not be a dice rule, but it is a rule. Well, that the setting is saying, yeah, this is the way things are. And, and I would like to stress, um, like I, I wanted, so I know sometimes folks talk about crunchy or fluffy or hard and soft, and and that's also what I'm getting at here, which is interesting. You brought that up. The idea that lore is something that's soft, and I have to emphasize here the idea that lore is malleable, but rules are something that are supposed to be meticulously interpreted. And I have to say that my own experience with extremely lore-heavy games like Legend of the Five Rings or Vampire is that lore is not flexible. If it showed up in novels or this is the specific hierarchy or this person's in charge of this borough, you show up in someone's game. That's the way it is. So um, what I'm getting at by mechanics is I'm pointing out that... um, uh, I think the reason why people might call lore soft is because lore isn't something you have a lot of control over. If you show up as a player, lore is something that's presented to you in most games. As, welcome to Vampire, here's the Camarilla. This is the way it is. It's presented to you, whereas mechanics is stuff that you actually manipulate. And that's why um, a lot of, you know, you can have games that are extremely lore-heavy, but mechanics light. They could still be restrictive, but also it's like it's not that you're making mistakes. You didn't make the lore. The lore was presented to you. That also can be a bit of a wall as well, because, say, Shadowrun, one of my favorite games I, I love. I love the setting. I love the what they did, the way they mix Tolkien and, and uh, you know, Neuromancer, right? Gibson, although Gibson famously has said many times in his own Twitter, he doesn't like Shadowrun. He officially hates it. But they did it and they pull it off. But it also can be daunting. Like, Everybody who knows how to run, there's one name that they know, and you know that they know. It's sort of the sibleth. That's Dunkelson. I just say Dunkelson, and you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a decade's worth of lore in just one name. I'm going to stop you right there, because also, Dunkelson couldn't run for president because he's not a native-born citizen of the United States. I just want to remind people of that. But, you know, he kind of did in the UCAS. Which is kind of a complicated thing, but I know where you're going at. Yeah, I know. What I mean by mountains of mechanics multiply mistakes. He can't run for president. He's not a natural born citizen of the United States. True enough. But true enough. But yeah. Uh, No, I think actually did he manage? I don't. I don't want to get into the whether or not he actually did that because I I know. It's. uh, um, But I I would like to ask: Has anybody here had had a situation? all right, I guess the last thing I would ask is about rules lawyering, which is where you run into a problem where um, you show up at a game and you want to build a character and they won't let you do it, but somebody else already has a character that's like the way you want it, but they say, oh, we don't let new people do that. We let him do that because he did that before, but now we know better. Has that ever happened to any of you? Not necessarily in that specific way, but definitely in the way of like, we're going to give exceptions to this person, but we're not going to give you these exceptions usually because of the relationship between those two people. So uh, I think on the previous time, I mentioned like the world's worst GM. uh, But at the time, at least once he decided to be a player and his uh, girlfriend at the time was running the game and would give exceptions to that character, but not to others, of course. So immediately... See, if you played the long... 
I played Hero System for over ten years, and that if anybody, if you played the Hero System, that inevitably happens. They say, "Well, we let this person build an Archer character, which uses mm-hmm. a specific kind of build, but we don't let new players do that because we can't make them delete their old character. That character is history, but we can't let you do that because we know these rules are broken. So this person gets to play with a broken character, and you don't. That's that. Has that ever happened to any of you? Yeah, it has happened to me several times. Yeah, uh, and mostly it's actually with superhero games, not just hero. Because I remember playing May- a lot of Mayfair DC uh, heroes as well, and Marvel superheroes, which everybody loves except me. For me, I don't. The only reason I don't like it, I prefer uh, Marvel Marvel Saga, which is something completely different. But yeah, superhero games are infam- infamous for being generically unbalanced because they try to emulate all the comic books, right? Your Batman's and your Superman, your Iron Man's and your Thor's, you know, and Daredevil. So, yeah, not yeah. even the movies try to do that. Yeah. Now, with Hero System, actually, funny example, it is optimal for every single character to become increasingly fast to the point of being what is obviously superhuman. But obviously, not every character concept is super is a super speed character. So immediately, anytime you play you will have to put your foot down and say, this is as much speed as you can get without it being some sort of specific power. Well, that that, that gets into, like I said, the optimization problem. Like you see the mm-hmm. same thing in, uh, I don't know if it's true in red, but it was true in every other version of Cyberpunk, which is you want your reflexes stat of 10 or higher. Uh, it, it reflexes controls dodging and shooting. You want that as high as possible. There's Makes no sense. reason not to max it out. Yeah, uh, it is the and- all combat stat. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it will keep you alive. There's no reason to balance in anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, but um, yeah, most of mostly really what the what the what the four the four M I think is more advice. I think you're seeing a lot more games these days taking uh, the four M rule to heart. In theory, the old school revival is supposed to be that folks are writing simpler games where you just, you know, they want to go back to that 83 basic set that they remember where you just rolled a die and did something. I say in theory because I see a lot of them grafting a lot of more crap onto it because you can't just, you know, the book has to have text in it. But there's also... Yeah, but the thing is, was it really simple? Because, for example, if you look, uh, uh, Griffin mentioned it a little moment, you look at the saving throws of the old style, they don't make any sense to anybody who reads it for the time. Why do you have well, a, ro- a save versus rot staffs or staves and wands and one and then death magic on the other? Now somebody right, explained I mean, it, we just accept I, it. But I know. will completely agree that D and D fifth edition has finally done a smart thing and said, just roll a stat, buddy. You mm-hmm. know, you've got six of the stats, just roll a stat. Because uh yeah, because for some reason saving throws had to be separate from stats. That was because they had this huge, stupid idea in D D that that stats were meaningless and everything had to be controlled by your level. No, you're right. It's just simpler. Uh, there were even 1980s games. I mean, Call of Cthulhu is very popular, and it was a 1980s game, and it started with the idea of, just roll stats, buddy. They're right there. You know, just, just if you need to resist being knocked down, just roll your strength. We're done. It's obvious. That, that is an interesting sort of thing to uh, I think maybe look at the, the directness of a set of rules because uh, say like in Wicked Ones which we've been doing, you, you just roll that skill, period, and that's all you you have to do, but like in a lot of other games there's a lot of derivative statistics based are, on are the original numbers and and the question, yeah, with Pathfinder okay. or, or any other game in, uh, Sorry, but how do you resist being knocked down in Pathfinder? Good question I don't know, I'd have to go look <laughs> 
there's a there's a separate stat which is for your for your oh, uh, grappling and attack bonus and oh separate from your normal right. melee attack. No, I was just I was mentioning that to make the point. It's kind of like uh, yeah, yes, we're, yes. We're, and uh, I don't want to disparage folks who like a lot of mechanics. I like a very crunchy and meticulous game, but I don't like playing uh, uh, a game where I'm playing it with other folks who aren't. It, weren't at the same level of rules. Like I recognize that not everyone's going to be at the same level of rules. And the problem with a really complicated game is if it's got a lot of crunchy rules to it, you need to manipulate these for maximum advantage. And not everybody at the table wants to do that. That's why I think you've seen like a big, uh, now that we've got people streaming games and those get away from that and are very much, you know, uh, story driven and performative driven, you, you've seen a, a big change away from that. And I think, I think the, I think it's a sign of the times that we no one seems to remember Rollmaster at all. It hasn't it hasn't inherited, despite it was the number two role playing game for at least a decade. Uh, it has faded into obscurity. Yeah. Mm. I have yeah, a player I, who used to play Rollmaster and and will not shut up about it. <laughs> you mean someone else other than me? <laughs> They're out there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I still praise the West End Games D six system. I like what? I like my no, I, I, I really simple. Yeah, but I like my pips. It's very simple, but but one thing I want to see with Duncanson is, and also Star Wars, is that even lore itself can be daunting. Because if again, if I need to know certain things, right, uh, you know, in order to understand the world, like oh yeah, go read these twenty novels that we published, right? It's like yeah. uh, 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 it might be too too much. In fact, I, that's one of the rules I did with Griffin's uh, game because I start with I'm running a Greyhawk game, which has mm-hmm. closely to 30, 35 years of history give and take, you know, when it's supported and not, right? Uh, and I said, no, don't worry. <laughs> don't worry about what happened in the Greyhawk Wars or that guy who decided to put a name on, on an entire nature and called Jeff or something. That's not important. You're not playing there. You're playing here. If you have yeah, any questions about, if you have a question about this particular place at this particular time, I'll try to answer the best I can. You know, and if you want to do your own independent research, no problem. But I'm not going to burden you with decades worth of lore about, you know, in, in, in a Forgotten Realms, in fact, they did that for the Vaughn Realms. They basically said anything that happened before 2011, 2012, it's, it's not, no, it's not, doesn't work. They essentially rebooted the entire lore of Forgotten Realms. And Elminster is still immortal and boning goddesses. Um, I do have the stats for Elminster in the box set. They're there, and that you can clearly see that that was a character that was made right on the page. That character never played. That character had so many psionic powers. Yeah, but, but, uh, in fact, I think that's fine. Uh, so yeah, so I, I think I hadn't thought about this, but I guess we need a four L rule, like lo- loads of lore lead to losing or something. I don't know because uh, you're absolutely right. There are there are games I won't play. I, I won't play um, Vampire or um, uh, Legend of the Five Rings because every time I've played them, uh, I get hammered by a bunch of lore that's in hundreds of pages. I mean, this is why D and D sort of has its reputation of being generic because. When you show up at a D&D game and they give you a character, a lot of the presentation is, let's have fun and let's create our own story. And it's presented as that. Whereas a game like Vampire or, to some extent, Shadowrun are presented as, no, 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 you know, in, in, actually, is it 2012 anymore when the Mayan calendar expired? Did they change that date? I forget. I think it is 2012 when that happens, when magic starts returning, but it takes like another 10 years for stuff to like actually settle in. Something like that. I mean, in other words, I know enough of the lore 
Uh, I, I know uh, I know enough of the lore to be familiar with it, but still not enough to actually play it. And it's like I'll read seven Harry Potter books before I read. In that. fact, that even affected the Shadowrun uh, trilogy. I spoke to I interviewed you many years ago, one of the designers, and one of the questions was like, "Hey, listen, you're talking a very complex game. How do you transfer it back to your computer? Right? How do you put it there?" It's like, yeah, one of the reasons why we started even before you know the first book was because there's so much lore mm-hmm. that. It doesn't make sense. In fact, one of the things you kind of do in the uh, in two of the games is that you essentially are setting up things that will happen later on. So people who know the lore is like, yeah, I know about those insect spider people. They're evil. They're going to do this. But somebody who's just playing is like, no, they're just evil insect people that you have to kill, right? I know about dragons, if you know about the lore. But it's a cool thing well, that you discover what dragons are in the video game. But if you say, for example, buy the latest edition, is it 5th edition or 6th edition of Shadowrun? It, might it has. It has. It has a huge lore because they talk about being 2070 or something. And the game started at 2020, 20, 2060, I think, originally, or 2050. Yeah. I don't know. So it's, it's, there's a lot of stuff there. Right. With Shadowrun, like, you need to map out like an entire global system just to like understand how your one group of Shadowrunners like, investigating the local water supply is going to like pan out across everything else. It's like, this is oh. absurd. Um, I mean, I feel a little bad that this is is negative because uh, you know we're talking about as game. I mean, we're all in agreement that I think that modern what you see in the modern streaming stuff, like the shows people really like, like Critical Role, are very much embracing the idea of being very creative uh, and involving players, both in the lore creation and also, uh, as we discussed on when we we're saying more performative. Uh, we're talking about things that actually enhance the experience, like deciding on the experience we want. And then picking mechanics and lore that go along with that experience rather than, you know, I, 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 I do think we are past the, it keeps creeping up, but we're mostly past the era of, you know, like lots and lots of rules. Uh, because I think, um, I don't know, it's just a weird paradox where people want lots and lots of rules, but then they don't actually want to use it. Yeah, I don't also think that mechanizing Section Zero, which is something I, I like to do in my own games, right, is important. Having that sort of introductory space where the players can sit down, discuss about the game, and make it part of the rules so that yes, it, it doesn't feel like it. a provision. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it feels like, okay, everybody's, you know, everybody has a place in it and everybody said, you know, like, here's the table, here's your, you know, whatever, read the book and we'll come back on Tuesday with your character and start playing. You're like, I definitely think we should devote uh, like like a different, because we're almost out of time here, but devote yeah. like a, a podcast session zero, because I'm anti session zero. And I'll tell oh. you all about why I hate it. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Grr. But but that's. <laughs> uh, I, I think think we're all in agreement that most uh, the the game. Uh, the phrase we like to use is the game should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. And that's a difficult thing for design. So um, I, I don't know. Uh, any like closing thoughts? Like Red, did you have something you wanted to add? What? Um, no. I'll, what I'll say is that I think it's interesting. I think in this podcast we focus a lot on simulation style games which i think is because that's where a lot of our personal uh history comes from and our love of these games come from these very crunchy interesting games i personally have been discovering more and more of our exceptionalist games right the ones that are maybe a little more role play heavy maybe a little less intimidating mechanically um and i've noticed that a lot of these games will give the players all the rules they need to play the game on their character sheet like it all fits on one page i think that's really cool i think that's a cool direction to go in obviously you have to balance that against the depth 
and the the breadth of the game that you want to play. But yeah, I like that kind of stuff. So that's my two cents. That's where I sit on this particular issue. Definitely. No, I, um, yeah. Well, we, my company publishes Powered by the Apocalypse games, which very much have that ethos of everything in front of you because, uh, yeah, that empowers players, whereas lots of rules can scare players off. Yeah. I think that in the future, I think this probably will also evolve into discussion of how games are marketed and affects the decisions that go into, you know, what rules are and how complex they are and, and everything else. And that perspective, I think, something that... Uh, yeah, because that, that's, that's a huge problem. As a person who's been in the industry, the retailers and players of the games tell me they want the game to be supported. But you can't do what TSR did of just publishing like lore and monsters because only the game master buys monsters and players outnumber game masters at least four to one. That's why World of Darkness sold so much better with lore books, a city book or a clan book. You could sell it to players. So when D&D third edition launched in, in its 2000s, you had like, you know, here's a book for more fighter options. Here's a book for more sorcerer options. They started selling more stuff geared towards players. And that's what gets the money. You know, somebody who makes their own random, here's 30 more options for sorcerer, OGL stuff. That's what sells. And then you have the problem where a lot of this stuff is poorly vetted. Uh, um, but, but it's this weird paradox of where, you know, people want more stuff for the game and they want stuff that empowers their characters because they're not going to pay money for stuff that doesn't. But they also say they don't want more rules. Yeah, which is why I hate Splat because I, I grew up with Splat and I was like, you know, I, my closet, if I were to put all the books I ever owned in this closet, I would need two of these or three of these closets just to get about half the collection. Okay. Kevin. Uh, any other? Uh, so, so mechanics, we're against them. Yeah. I guess is our consent. All right. So if that's the note we're going to end off on, then let's go ahead and do it. So that's going to be it for this episode of Notes from the Aleph. Uh, everybody, we stream episodes bi-weekly Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. You can join us live on twitch.tv slash Ractus. We also stream and record weekly tabletop games at the same channel, and you can come join us when we start at 10 a.m., 2 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sundays and Wednesdays. Norman Rafferty here is a partner and writer at Sandwood Games. Check out sandwoodgames.com and join the Reddit and Twitter and look forward to the upcoming book of Corals, Iron Claw Expansion, where you can gauge your own pirate adventure. Don't forget to check out Red Rabbit's book and... Uh, Red Rabbit and booking for a game over on startplaying.games as Oracular Pig. And Lessons, why don't you give a shout out to your channel real quick, too? Yes, uh, stream games uh, every night uh, over at Lessons Learned Channel, Lessons Learned One. The one is important. I am also a writer of speculative fiction. You can find my first uh, short story collection over at Amazon.com for 99 cents. It's called Knights, as in Knights of Chivalry and Stars. And of course, I am also a GM here on Sundays. I run the uh, into the Wild Coast, a uh, Greyhawk 5th uh, edition adventure. Yep, so be sure to join us then, and of course, be sure to like, comment, subscribe, and come see us all again.